Jailhouse Talk. I'm Andrew Shoemaker. I'm still Rob Thomason. We are here to talk about Follow That Dream. I have no idea what this movie is. I'm guessing it's another another musician follows the dream and then things are hard. This was released on April 11th, 1962. Elvis was finishing up filming on Blue Hawaii and then Wild in the Country is released in June of 1961. And that's really kind of the only thing that happens between him filming Blue Hawaii and then Follow That Dream. Obviously, Wild in the Country being released to those mixed reviews, it just ends up being another nail in the coffin for any serious acting opportunities that Elvis would want to take on in the future. So mm. Follow That Dream is just another musical comedy in that same kind of vein as Blue Hawaii, I believe. I mean, I'm looking forward to this trailer because the poster says it's his funniest, happiest, wildest emotion picture. Let's check it out. Follow That Car. It's headed for this theater, loaded with the most happy-go-lucky group of wanderers who ever came down the pike chasing after a rainbow. And the happy-go-luckiest of them all is the one and only Elvis himself. I've got to follow that dream wherever that dream may lead me. i got to follow that dream. It's a new Elvis, one you've never seen before uproariously funny as a lawman who does everything wrong but gets the right results. Elvis, absolutely irresistible as an unwilling Lothario who turns to ice every time a lovely lady turns on the heat. Anybody ever tell you you're very handsome? Only girls. So I say, you know what? She says, what? I say, what? Oh, I'm not the marrying kind. They insist that they're giving sound advice But as sure as you're living, it ain't sound, it ain't nice Show me a girl with a dimple on her cheek But her melts in her mouth when she opens it to speak And I mean, Elvis looks utterly miserable for this entire movie. He looks like he's phoning it in. It looks like a fun movie, though, to be quite honest. He's doing karate left and right in this movie. It definitely seems to be the most, like, outright, yeah, like, outright comedy, outright goofy, just silly. But, dude, I just, that just made me sad. Like, Elvis looks so sad. I feel like we'll have fun watching it, but I bet you he hates it because they probably made him... The, he's just the butt of the joke probably for the most of the movie and but he does karate chop a dude in the throat and steal his gun that was dope the only thing that's more formulaic than elvis movies is elvis trailers right because all it does is cut between elvis fighting and karate chopping and singing and that's all that's mostly if you look back at all these trailers it's it's pretty that's pretty much all that happens it's all fighting it's all singing and it's loving that's all you it know? is and sure those things are fun but oof, they start to get out of proportion pretty quick We've been surprised, though. Like, a lot of the previews make us look like the movie has zero depth, and then you watch the film, and you're like, oh, that's not what the, the trailer said at all. So I'm, I'm looking forward to watching it. 
I've heard some things that are, you know, this this may not be his greatest, but it's just like kind of like one of his more underrated movies potentially. That this is like a pretty a pretty solid one of his of his comedies. So yeah, so we'll just have to see and make that decision for ourselves. So let's go watch it. So we're back. Another day, another episode. Yeah. Uh, there are some things I liked about this movie. There are some moments I enjoy. And there are some situational comedy kind of stuff that I think is funny. And I think Elvis is good. But overall, personally, I was just, eh, eh. Just kind of, eh. It's a weird movie. It's it's like watching a live-action cartoon. I mean, it, there's so much slapstick comedy in it. There's not a lot of logic behind anything that's happening. There's Some of the jokes are like dad jokes, mm-hmm. like so so goofy and over the top. It was fun to do for the podcast, though, but I wouldn't want to watch it on my own time. It's the only one that I ended up not watching twice all the way through. And it just felt really, really long to me. I mean, it's an hour and 50 minutes. It's not a short one. It's, I, think it's, I think it might be the longest one we've had so far. And we'll get into it when we go through what happens, but it it drags at the end, man. Yeah, I mean, I do like Elvis plays dumb in this movie, and I think I think he's really funny, and I think I honestly kind of is it bad to say I enjoy Elvis playing dumb kind of more than him playing like a wow, you're just you're just the best of all at all times, Elvis. You know, maybe it was just kind of refreshing and it was kind of different. Yeah. Than the other ones he's constantly it just feels like hero worship and this one he's just kind of like a well, I'm not too bright, but I'm not stupid either. And he's and he's like really good. And they play on it a lot in this movie and I mean, so Follow That Dream is based on a book called Pioneer Go Home, uh-huh. and it, it's, it follows pretty much the same story. In the book, they have a hurricane, which I would have loved to have seen in this movie, not not maybe making it 20 minutes longer. But Pioneer Go Home seems to be a more direct satire than this is, where yeah. I feel like it kind of got lost in translation, where they're kind of making it into a little bit more of just a soft, funny, goofy kind of comedy Rather than it is, I I, don't, I haven't read the book. I don't know how biting of a yeah. satire it is, but I would assume I, I felt that I would assume that it goes a little bit harder on some of the stuff that I mean, like there are definitely some lines in this movie that kind of address those, like the government and its role and what poor people's role is and how they fit into, like like you know the the dad says at one point, how many times do I have to tell you that the government don't run out of money? Only people run out of money. The government's loaded. Yeah, I think the problem is it's not biting satire. It's just farce, so I don't really know what it's saying about government or about people who take advantage of government or the American dream or anything. You know, it's not like it's not like reading Candide where you get a sense of the dry irony and the sharp wit behind criticizing everything. Mm. It's more just kind of like everyone's stupid and goofy. Yeah, it, it comes across as more of like a comic strip kind of. Yeah, dude, it actually feels like a comic strip straight out of the, like the morning paper when you were a kid. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what this movie feels like. It does kind of like, oh, isn't it funny how we think about these things are important and these things aren't and the kind of hypocrisy of big government and stuff like that. And I get that. But it just it just feels really out of place and a little bit forced at times. Mm-hmm. Also, the course of the story, there's just like there's really just like four or five separate stories within one yeah. weird situation. So it just kind of is just one in a long list of things that are like, hey, I wish we would have picked half of these and focused on those rather than it just doesn't feel very cohesive. And I think that that's basically the main thing. So let's speaking of the story, let's give the listeners who haven't seen the movie yet a bit of grounding. So the whole movie's photographed in the great state of Florida. Mm-hmm. And it begins with a helicopter shot of this car driving down this road in the middle of Florida. 
It's uh, one old man, what seems to be his daughter, two kids, and Elvis. But they're driving along, and they find this government road. And it's apparently an area that's going to be developed by the state of Florida. Uh, you, you ain't going to use that road, are you, Pop? Why not? Well, that sign says closed to the public. Well, we ain't the public. We're part of the government. They send me checks. I keep them busy and happy. We're dependent on each other. We ain't the public, Toby. And really, the get kind of like the idea of what the image of this family looks like is there. It's not directly correlated, but it seems to be like an inspiration for Beverly Hillbillies and kind and Green Acres and those kinds of shows that come later, right? Which is the a poorer family that kind of finds themselves in a situation where they kind of bumble through and make a mockery of the rich people or the government types that try to tell them what they are or how to be. And so it's these the simple folk who are actually smarter and more wise than the rich folk kind of a thing. Yeah, so be- that's what the image of, of this their honesty. is. Mm-hmm. That they're just good, simple, character-driven people. And so they're driving down this new government road, and unfortunately, Pop driving the car he he goes over a giant tree that's strewn across the road <laughs> i mean we've all been there we you just cruising along with your family on a nice a nice sunday drive and and suddenly there's a a three foot diameter thick palm tree that's just laying in the middle of the road and we've all hit one let's be honest what do you do you just drive over it and the car gets stuck like seesaw style over it but don't worry elvis presley playing the character of toby gets out and he uses his judo power to literally pick up the car with zero effort. Damn it, I lost my traction. Don't get upset, Paul. I'll lift her off. You'll do nothing of the kind. You're getting $63.80 a month because the army totally disabled your back. Now, how is it going to look if somebody comes along and you're lifting up an automobile? My back don't feel totally disabled. It don't matter how your back feels. It's what the army doctor says that counts. I keep telling you, Pop. They examined me right after my first judo lesson. It was a little twisted up, but it twisted back next lesson. They're driving along. They run out of gas. They're going to go get more gas. And for some reason, I don't remember what it is, but Pop tells them not to. So they just decide to build a lean-to and just camp and live on this beach at the side of the highway because they think someone's going to come along. Well, I mean, when you stumble upon a virgin paradise, a, a verdant oasis in the middle of nowhere... Why, why would you not take advantage of it? I mean, Pop cites the Homestead Act and like, oh, we're just going to homestead on it, which, you know, is meant for people who were expanding to the West in the mid-1800s, but it probably still applies here. I guess so. The kind of sad thing, though, is that this movie shot in Crystal River, Florida, and this beach that they come upon, which kind of is like in the middle of nowhere right off a road, it just kind of seems out of place, is because they just cleared it out and dumped sand on it to make a beach and then implanted palm trees and stuff like that, which they eventually had to spray paint green because they were dying, which is just really sad. Like like a, the succulents at Home Depot that they like spray paint. This is for the movie they did this? Yeah, for the movie. They just built this whole little beach on the side of this road, which seems completely unnecessary because you're already in Florida. There has to be other natural spots to do it in. But they they literally just paid two 17-year-old like high school students who they, they picked them up in a white limousine, came over, they'd shovel dirt every day, and then the limousine took them home, apparently. So but the cool thing is they did use all the like a lot of extras and everybody that worked on the movie primarily was from that small community, which is cool. That is cool. I also thought it was really weird how they decide to build a lean to shelter and everything after running out of gas, and then there's just like a dissolve, seemingly like the next day or something. And they've already got 
like a lean-to shelter and the kid is on a swing a metal swing were they just carrying around a priority car being Listen, like they're resourceful people you know you gotta let them gotta let them create art the ways they can well i would dearly love to know what's so awful about nesting just being married and having a house well nothing except doing it when you don't want to i think a man ought to be allowed to wait till he wants to women don't aim to let you wait that's why I use my education again. Yeah, education. Mm-hmm. Multiplication table. Anytime some pretty gal stand around and bother me, I just close my eyes and I say one times one is one, and one times two is two, and right on through the eights. Most of the time I don't have to get to the sixes and they get disgusted and go away. I can imagine. I don't know about you. But when I find myself being seduced by a 13-year-old who we picked up and we've grown up with and now she's turned 18 or 19 and she seems to have fully blossomed into a woman, when I don't want to be seduced by her, I usually run through my multiplication tables so that I can avoid temptation. (laughs) That's just what Elvis does. Which is what Elvis uses repeatedly throughout this movie. There were two running jokes that I noticed at least throughout this movie, which are his multiplication tables whenever it's like, oh, somebody's trying to seduce poor old Elvis again. And the uh, pop builds a outhouse that repeatedly he can't get the pressure right or something on the on the toilet and it always sprays it. Yeah. Was, there, was there any other recurring things besides those two? Uh, yes, there is the Butterfinger uh, oh, candy bar joke with the twins. The twins will always break a candy bar in half. One side's always longer, and the other twin will eat that side until it matches and give it to the other twin who's okay with mm. it. So there's a few weird recurring jokes, none of which are funny. Yeah, I mean, they're, like, <laughs> a little cute at first, but once they, like, they each get used, like, three, four, five times, which, you know, again, that's, like, four or five minutes of the movie we could have cut out right there. Anyways, they're camped out on the side of the road, and a car finally comes along. And it's a uh, government man. Mr. Arthur King is his name. Yeah, and his his job title is something to do with the interstates, right? Yeah, something vague. Just, he, I think he's I think he's in charge of like developing this land basically and this this government road that they've been working on. It's like his project or something like that. Fair enough for him. He comes upon a group of people just squatting on this <laughs> land off the side of the highway. They find out that the governor is supposed to be coming down the road, going to name the highway or something like that. And so he tries to get. Elvis's family off the road, but Pop ain't having it. And Pop invokes the homesteading law. Well, you know what the law states about uh, homesteading, don't you, Governor? Well, we're homesteading from the end of the thoroughfare to the edge of the river. Oh, homesteaders, eh? Any public land can be homesteaded, can't it? Yes, sir. They put up a roof and stay on it for six months. They own it. Boy's right, Governor. Well, there's the roof. Uh... They're on private property. Would you get back on mine? They're trespassing. All right, officers, get off. Respect private property at all times, gentlemen. That's the law. Well, justice has been rendered. I'll see you later, Mr. King. Let's move along. Take care of yourself. Thank you, sir. But so after they leave, the whole family's just kind of figuring out, all right, so we're here and we have this land. But, you know, it's not necessarily a, a burgeoning farmland. It's still a sandy beach. So they kind of have to figure out what are they going to do business-wise? How are they going to make any money, right? They do have their welfare checks. But a random guy arrives as they're fishing off the side of a bridge. And he's an, he's an avid fisherman. He's observing all of the, the, the local catch. There's some great—I don't know whether it's necessarily a—I don't know what they catch. It's but, a tarpon. 
Oh, it's a tarpon. He's, I... he's fishing a tarpon, which get huge. Actually, I've I when I was younger, I went to a tarpon fishing tournament with my dad, and we actually saw people pull in ones that were like over a hundred pounds and stuff. Catching a tarpon with a cane rod is kind of insane. But the self-proclaimed ardent fisherman, uh, his name I believe is Mister Endicott, is observing Elvis catch this impossible fish with his impossible lure. And he, and he says, you know what? You should make a business here. He's like, I work in a bank. I could totally get you guys a loan. And you could basically get some boats, get a dock, and kind of take people out here fishing. Yeah, and then one simple fade, and suddenly there's a, there's a successful fishing business on the property. And so it's growing, and you know they're getting a couple people. But they realize, yes, to expand this and make this truly profitable, they got to get a bank loan. The one weird scene, though, before they go to the bank, is Holly, right, who is, she's lived with the family since she's 13. And they took her, because I think she was an orphan or something like that. And she's been, you know, living, we don't really know exactly how old Toby is. I would assume, like, you know, early 20s, right, probably? Yeah. The point is, they're very much a brother and sister type, or they should be. What did I say was so funny? Oh, nothing. I was just remembering after your folks died, Pop took you in. What a skinny, scrawny little thing you were. All eyes and elbows. And now you're practically, well, like you said, practically a woman. Toby. Huh? Will you look at me? Mm Mm-hmm. No, I mean real good. I know you're a woman, Holly. And I know I said practically. And that bothers you, don't it? Yeah, well, I am 19 years old, and I'm I'm kind of well-built. Yep, I know that, too. And I'm glad of it. Are you, Toby? Uh Uh-huh. Because I'm trying not to notice things like that, and you're a good one to practice not noticing on. Well, why me, and... Well, what's wrong with noticing girls? Well, that's how they catch you. Pop told me all about it the day I got sent home from band practice for grabbing Amy Plotkin. You remember Amy? Yeah, I remember Amy. You know anything about sex, Holly? Of course I do. Who told you? I... I don't remember. Never you mind. You've been living with us since you was 13. You know about it then? How did you feel about this whole scene? (laughs) Well, obviously it's cringy that she grew up with him since she was 13 and there's a romantic plot there. But aside from that, this I did think it was interesting because we talked about this in Blue Hawaii that they're finally starting to talk about sexuality around Elvis Mm -hmm. in movies now. And again... They're not really sexualized in this scene, but they talk directly about sex. Mm-hmm. And in the previous movie, it talks about youth sexuality a little bit. So I, I at least thought that was interesting as a cultural artifact that they're, as we're getting later in time, they're directly engaging with that more and more. I guess they're just setting up the love interest they have for each other. Yeah, I mean, I guess that that later. to me, though, is the most unnecessary part of the whole story. Like, it, sure. it ends up being a weird res- resolution in the end and an excuse for another song, basically, to close out the movie. That love story is really kind of the most, it's the least crucial part of this movie, I think. It's just, I guess, trying to reinforce, like, 
that follow that dream mm-hmm. of getting a house, your own place, and but there's a this, family. there's this kind of theme though that keeps happening of Toby saying that Pop has taught him that like women just kind of want to trap men, basically. And the how he's you got to stay away from him because he even mentions like remember when I got sent home from band practice for grabbing Amy Amy Plotkin and stuff like that where it's like man women only get you into trouble and it's like no Elvis you got in trouble because you grabbed someone who did not want you to grab <laughs> and then there's this whole thing about how he's like I don't you're nesting I don't want to uh, listen t- Toby's a simple man okay <laughs> a very very he's simple a very man. simple man doesn't everybody want to fall in love not me. Not judging the kind of love I've seen people fall into. Pop had a song explained it pretty well. Let me see, how did that thing go? Show me a girl with a dimple on her cheek, but her mouth's in her mouth when she opens it to speak. Show me a girl who is acting so refined. And I'll show you a girl with one thing on her mind. So I say, you know what? She says, what? I say, what? Oh, I'm not the marrying kind. They do the song, I'm not the marrying kind, to explain the reason he doesn't ever want to get married, which, again, is fine, and like all the rest of the songs in this movie, I I don't mind Follow That Dream, I enjoy the title song, but the rest of them are just fine, and honestly probably the most forgettable ones in any of the movie that we've seen so far, unfortunately. Not really great tracks, and just lazy. Every single song in this movie is him playing guitar, uh, sitting down, Mm. or... Follow that dream, actually. Oh God, we'll get we'll get to that. Kind of blows my mind, but that is, yes, the epitome is the laziest yeah. <laughs> music scene I've ever seen in my life. Now, however, though, the next scene that we come on when they go to the bank and Elvis is trying to get a loan is actually pretty great. And I think these are the moments where the movie's really good, right? Which, yeah. which because it is basically like an episode of Beverly Hillbillies. It's those kinds of situational comedy where they roll up in their you know beat up old 1930s vehicle howard mcnear is there right so he's from blue hawaii and he's playing like a bank teller and elvis you know he's just trying to ask somebody for a loan and accidentally follows him into where the vault is and then they think he's getting then they think he's trying to rob them and howard mcnear faints and there's this whole thing where he walks out and he's like oh, i'm just trying to get him some help i'm just looking who thinks who could give me some money but everybody thinks he's just sticking the place up yeah and the cops like pull a gun out on him so he like judo chops one and takes the guy's gun away and, and then the head of the bank comes out and he who's the who's the fisherman from earlier he's the fisherman from earlier and he's trying to figure out what's going on and Elvis just explains everything in a very, his very simple, <laughs> naive kind of way. And it's it's like the most casual response to a stick-up, even though it's not a stick-up, but everybody's on the ground terrified of Elvis now that he's clearly incapacitated the bank teller. But I think that Elvis is really good in these scenes where if he doesn't play it as like naive and as just kind of completely oblivious as he does, it really doesn't work as comedy but it's great and in this this scene and also especially the stuff with the mobsters later on that kind of i don't know that kind of simple just genteel nature that elvis shows in these movies and even though you know obviously don't get me wrong there's not any lower of a body count of elvis taking out dudes in this movie than there aren't any other ones but it's it's cooler to see him not play up to that same level of like i'm just a machismo gotta defend people's honor kind of guy he's just a oh i'm just Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to do that at all. You know, stuff like that. 
the characters don't know what's going on, but we, the audience, are in on it because we know what Toby's character is like, and therefore that that irony causes us to think this situation is hilarious. Like, he literally just successfully disarmed a guard and pretty much successfully was a bank robber if he wanted to be, but sure. instead was like, oh, just, I don't know, he pointed a gun at me, so I took him out. <laughs> like, <laughs> so he is, I do think those situations are written well. Yeah, and they well. successfully get a bank loan, which... I, I did want to check and make sure they give them a character loan of $2,000, which I was like, is that even a real thing? Which apparently it totally is, where somebody mm. at the bank can vouch for your personal character, even though you might have bad credit or don't have the capacity to get a loan. Otherwise, you can get a loan of up to $10,000. Wow. So that is like a real thing. Apparently, obviously, it's a much more in like small town communities, but I did, I did confirm it is actually a real thing, even though obviously the people at this bank have literally not known them for more than 30 minutes so you know we'll let that one slide and the thing is the business starts to thrive obviously with this little bit of a boost and people are starting to come and fish and now there's a they have a little bit more property than just this beachfront and there's space for other people to move in so the quimpers soon get new neighbors in the form of an rv that pulls up that's basically a traveling casino run by mobsters and honestly, this part of the movie is great, and this is where the movie really starts for me and the part that I really care about. Yeah. Because the interplay between him and the mobsters, like, it's one thing to be like, oh, the misunderstandings of other parts in this movie, but once it's, like, real physical threats of violence that ends up to ha- ends up happening because the mobsters are like, we got to get these people out of here, is is actually really good. Yeah, and, the, and it plays off the mobster, like, words, you know, like, give them the full treatment, and all this, you know, oh, the full treatment, that sounds nice. You know, just, yeah, like, yeah. playing off... All those words that mobsters say as like secondary words for what they actually mean. And then Toby just taking that as that's literally what it means is <laughs> actually makes for a lot of good stuff. The first time that Elvis goes over with Holly to meet the mobsters and just like, oh, just got to say hello and welcome our neighbors to the neighborhood. Oh, Holly, you made you some coffee. Would you like to try some? Sure thing. Hey, you two must be from next door. Yeah, glad to meet you. Pleased to meet you. Would you like to come inside, meet my partner, Nick? What's that? What's what? Oh, well, well, Holly ain't never been nowhere. That's, that's a pool table, honey. First one I ever seen without pockets, so. Yeah, well, you just come to the button and make yourself some easy money, Sam. <laughs> uh, what you do? Send out for something? Uh, no, Nick. Uh, these people are from next door. They brought us some coffee. Coffee? What for? You drank it. See, kidding? I don't think so. He's like that. Well, Toby and I just like to be neighborly, that's all. Sure, you want me to pour your cup? No, 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 but look, we're not neighbors. This is a floating game, see? We just stick around in one place until it gets too hot, then we move along, get it? Oh, sure. Well, they tell me it don't get hot around here till about the middle of July. He is like that, ain't he? Carmine is played by Jack Crucian, who he actually won a... Best Supporting Actor for his role in The Apartment. He plays Jack Lemmon's neighbor who is like this neurotic neighbor who constantly suspects him of of having women over at his apartment. All the, Like a huge misunderstanding mm-hmm. part. But he's really good in that. And anybody who hasn't seen The Apartment should check it out. Um, so basically, at first, they're they're pretty amicable with the mobsters. They, they realize, hey, I don't want the government to bother me. You don't want the government to bother you either. Let's just live in, live in peace and we'll have a good time. But obviously... They don't realize that in running a casino that people are going to be there till 4 or 5 a.m. at night. And it's extremely loud, and it's kind of invading on their newly founded homesteaded kingdom. And Elvis becomes the sheriff because, you know, when you got a homestead, 
laws don't matter, but they do matter, and you can kind of do whatever you want. So they elect him as the sheriff, and he's got to basically go clean out the mobsters. And at the same time as he starts to do all that kind of stuff, Mr. King has to find a way to get these people out of here so his good government road can be respectable and clean. And he enlists the help of Alicia, who is a social worker, played by Joanna Moore, goes on this campaign of her trying to seduce Elvis and give him like a word association test and basically try to trip him up into proving that this is these people shouldn't be here. This is a people of low character. Uh, now the third word. Steal. Home. Oh, you poor boy. You think somebody's trying to steal your home. Willie May stole home. Who's Willie May? Not May. Mays. He's a, he's a baseball oh, player. Oh, The association speaks for itself. Now, number four. Girl. Dad. Holy Moses. Something wrong? Tell me, Al, he's had to ask you to explain that one for me. That's the song they're playing. On top of old Smokey, where things get real hot, where girls are a problem, which dad knows I've got. <gasps> That's pretty good. Sing them all. I've got to follow that dream wherever that dream may lead. I gotta follow that dream to find the love I need. I can I honestly cannot believe that the action during he he performs during Fall That Dream is to lay down. Oh then he rolls over once. He literally scratches his butt. Yeah. Picks up some sand. Rolls back over. That's all he does while he sings. Like that—that that, that was the choreography. It's no slice in sand. I'll say that much. But it's just weird. It's just so weird. It seems so uncomfortable, and he looks miserable <laughs> during the whole thing. It's—it's it's just abs- it's absurd. I mean, I'm glad at least that they put a radio there to very weakly explain where the music is coming from. But still, it's—it's it's just brutal. And yeah, and then Holly eventually shows up and you're like what are you doing and she gives a line that's great which is my favorite out of context elvis movie line which is if you're finished tickling toby's leg i'd like him to do a chore (laughs) and then she just shoves alicia into the water (laughs) oh man it's so good it's it's such a weird movie but anyway she leaves right tail between her legs and goes back and at this point she's furious also she goes to the outhouse to clean herself up and gets splashed by the toilet again which is you know Gotta, gotta keep paying in for those jokes. Speaking of the toilet, when Pop builds the toilet, there's a line where he says, ain't nobody can fret a family that's got its own private John. And Holly, her eyes light up when she sees the <laughs> toilet. Like She's literally just like, oh my God. It's just like, how impoverished were these people before this? Thing is, I don't really know where they came from. Part of why I couldn't tell necessarily what, like, the, what time period we were in, because at first I thought that like, oh, they were talking about homesteading and so it's like depression era it's like oh okay so maybe they're like they're escaping the dust bowl or it's just part of the depression but i don't think this doesn't i mean clearly everyone else is dressed like it's a more modern fair so they're not coming from the depression i think they're just just generally poor but we don't really know where they're from in the book apparently they're from new jersey 
but with all the accents, I'm going to assume this family is not from New Jersey in this movie. Uh, I don't think so. And didn't they say that they came like across the Alabama line or something like that? Maybe so. I mean, that would make more sense, but I don't, I didn't remember that specifically. Don't forget your hat. Oh, Holly. Now you were elected sheriff, you gotta look like one. I don't like all this fuss. Look, son, this is your first official act as sheriff. It's like being part of the government. I don't know whether I like that. Well, go ahead, son. Do your best now, will you? All right, Pops. Hi. Well, if it is not a sheriff. Come on in, Toby. Sit down. Thank you, sir. Make yourself comfortable. Would you like a drink? No, thanks. You know, it's going to be a wonderful feeling having you around here to protect us. It is? Yeah. Carmine and me and the boys, we're all going to be able to sleep a lot better now. I sure hope so. Hey, Sheriff, uh, we were wondering, what's uh, going to be your policy? Policy? I pledge allegiance to the flag and the country for which it stands. One nation, indivisible. With... No, that's not what we want to know. Is it? Well, it'll do for openers. Oh, what we were really interested in, Sheriff, is um, what ordinances are you going to enforce? Well, I guess I'm going to enforce them all. Ain't no need in favoring one over another. So he goes in to talk to the gangsters. When he walks in, he's covering up his badge so no one sees that he's a sheriff. And he tells them that, you know, there's a few new rules in the homestead since he's the sheriff, uh, a few new laws. And one of them is that the place can't go past 11 p.m. And obviously that's not going to sit well with the gangsters because they start making all their money after 11 p.m. So Nick tells his two bodyguards, you know, he, he says, all right, boys, give them the treatment. And they're like, oh, the full treatment? He's like, yeah, the full treatment. These guys have this really weird, I don't know, I guess they're like playing off his naivete a little bit. But they're just like, hmm, you got to be careful being sheriff. What if someone did something like this and they like grab him from behind and then the other gangster is like, yeah, and if someone pulled out a blackjack like this and then Toby is just like, well, I guess I'd do this and he like judo throws a dude across the room. <laughs> He's like, and then I do this and he like chops the dude's neck so that he just blacks out on the floor and pretty much takes the guy out. And then I think it's like he's worried about them. So he goes out and everyone sees his sheriff badge out in the gambling hall in mm -hmm. the trailer and screams because obviously it's illegal for them to be there. They all freak out and all run out. And so the monsters decide, all right, that's it. We're, we're done playing nice. We're going to call in what he calls some real pros to take care of this. I think they're from Detroit. I they're believe. from Detroit. Elvis, obviously, just, you know, being a good citizen, being a good sheriff one night sees these men that are stuck and stuck in the mud nearby. Well, they try and run them over first, and they dodge out of the way, and then they swerve off the road and get stuck. And Which looks like of a being... really dangerous stunt. Like, it's a really close call, and it's somebody really diving out of a car that is speeding directly at them. Yeah, and of course, good old sweet Toby, sweet-hearted, naive Toby, instead of thinking, these people just almost killed me, he goes, oh, looks like they're stuck and need help. <laughs> So he just walks over there. And just assumes they were driving drunk, basically. It's, he just always assumes the best in everybody. He, he thinks they're drunk, and he thinks they're on a hunting trip at this point because they have guns. Mm -hmm. So it's like, well, drunk people shouldn't have guns, so I'm going to have to get them from them. And then he, like, does some of, like, some special forces level shit. <laughs> I mean, he's Rambo. He's like Florida Rambo, basically. Metal Gear Solid, Solid Snake in these guys, like... <laughs> Anyway, long story short, he ends up with all their guns, and and they are freaked out. 
Yeah, and he just takes all their guns. And as they're walking home, he's like, oh, what's this? Somebody, oh, somebody left something underneath our porch. Oh, it's just an entire jug of kerosene that was probably not going to be used to blow up our house. And Holly's like, oh, well, we should take it back to Nick. It must be Nick's. So they like take it back over to the trailer. And they leave it in the trailer for Nick. Yeah, and basically and they go out to the dock. And basically, it just like I think it just freaks the mobsters out so bad. It's one of those like these people must be true psychopaths kind of a thing, right? Well, I think I don't think it's that they're true psychopaths. It's just they can't tell if this guy is a damn genius <laughs> and has been playing them for fools the whole time, or if he's actually naive but ruining their life. Mm-hmm. Like they literally say, "I can't even tell anymore." At different points at the end. Evening, gentlemen. Good evening. Toby, do you have to carry that awful gun around? Well, I just scare people with, Holly. Is he kidding? I just don't know anymore. Oh, your friend Blackie, he left a jug of kerosene and package under our porch. I took him back to your place. Your what? Our place? Yeah, it's right inside the door. You can find it easy enough. We can, huh? Ten. Nine. Eight. Seven, six, five. Uh, do you do the multiplication tables too, Nick? Three, two, one. Well, the dog gone. Your place blowed up, Nick. It's on fire too. He must be kidding. Still not sure. So there you go. That takes care of the mobsters. And now they only have one more problem, which is new, because they've been served. After, you know, a half a day of hard evidence collecting, word association tests, and building this enormous case against the Quimpers. You know, you can go to court and fight for the kids and you're going to lose them. Or you can pack up everything you've got here and be out of our hair. So it was obviously a tactic to get them out of the, the land. And now begins the worst part of the movie. The courtroom scene, which is just like a whole nother act that is completely pointless. It's not even a short court scene. It's like a 15, 20 minute long court scene. It is rough. Uh, I mean, the cool thing, though, is Roland Winters, who plays Mr. Gates in Blue Hawaii, shows up as the judge. So it's nice to see him again. But basically, this whole sham of a proceeding is totally focused around, obviously, you know, Alicia and Mr. King present their case of, like, these people are known associating with with criminals and illegal gamblers and blah, 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 right? They lay out the case of basically, they they basically recite the entire plot of the movie and how it, it can be perceived as these are bad people. And then they have to defend themselves and kind of go like, no, no, let me explain, let me explain, let me explain. But the nail in the coffin for, for the state is going to be this word association test that she administered to Toby. Your Honor... May I remind you of my findings in this man's word association test? He may mean well consciously, but his subconscious motivations are all that really matter. Well, have you anything to say about that test? Yes, sir. Can I say it in private? Very well. Counsel for the defense points out, and very correctly, that his test has nothing to do with the case. It is his father who is the children's presumptive guardian. Well, let his father take the test. I have one right here. That was counsel's suggestion. Mr. Quimper, please. And so it's revealed that she was criticizing 
these answers that were actually the judges instead of pops, which I think is a completely normal legal defense. <laughs> and voila, you're a, you're a fraud. This whole thing's a sham. The kids are free. Everybody celebrates. Look, was there any doubt at any moment in this movie that our boy Elvis would not come out on top in this court scene? I mean, no. I there are no stakes. There are no stakes in a court scene with Elvis involved. It just it's just, just going to win. It's funny in this context because it's like, when you're watching it the whole time, you're like, well, obviously they're going to get the kids back. How is how is this going to work out for Elvis as well as possible? But it's just absurd. It's honestly so... It's more frustrating because it's like, wow, this is such a weak finale. I mean, I don't know. I kind of like I kind of like the trick and the situational comedy of making the judge have to sit there and listen to this woman like tell that he's like a psychopath, mm-hmm. essentially. But yeah, it just... It, it took so long to get to that, that point. But I will say in this... In this scene, I think it gets to maybe if there's a core to what the movie's trying to say, it's when Arthur King says something about the public will not stand for this or something along those lines. And Pop says, the problem with people like you is you don't know the difference between the public and the people. So I think it's playing with that idea of bureaucracy and the divide between government and the people i think it's all that stuff that was probably in the novel <laughs> that is mm-hmm. not in the movie but they they put that in so i think that's why this scene is kind of forced and shoehorned into the movie is to like a last ditch effort to make it yeah it's the only place where these things are so explicitly stated that yes they've been hinted at and they kind of talk about the government and whatever it's the same thing as happens in blue hawaii right it's the like okay we got to make this thing make sense and wrap up and have a moment that really shows people you know what's important in life yeah i would like to go back and read the book's version of this scene and maybe it has a little bit more to say rather than it just being one line that's like oh that makes the whole movie make sense kind of a thing yeah one thing that's actually kind of funny this courtroom is a apparently like a historical citrus county courthouse that was built in 1912 and apparently ran into disrepair at some point this film was directly attributed for the restoration and making it look the way it did originally because it's the only like photographic evidence that anyone's had of the entire setup of the court oh wow so it ended up being important as a as restoring a place that's listed in the national register of historical places which is kind of cool yeah that is kind of cool unfortunately this movie has disappeared into history because you can't find it anywhere (laughs) I'm not saying I had to illegally stream it, but I couldn't find it anywhere. Yeah. But I did watch it, but I couldn't find it anywhere legally. Yeah. So good luck on this one, everybody. But the courthouse scene ends and you're like, okay, this is like, this is the end. This is when the old movie does the the end sign over everyone clapping and hugging in the courtroom, superimposed. And since there's no credits at the end of old movies and it's, and it's just over. But no. We got to keep going. There's another scene. For no reason in which Elvis plays some music and Holly comes out dressed all hotly and Elvis is like, oh, you're a woman now. And they kiss. I got to ask you, the ending is a climax joke, right? When the toilet explodes while they're kissing. I mean, I think it has to be. It's too intentional not to. Tony B, you're doing that darn times table. Don't you know something? I never got to the 12 so fast. 12 times 12. Is What bothers me is what comes after the twelves. Me, Toby.
sir. She's loaded with pressure. So Follow That Dream is much more aligned with the new kind of movies that Elvis is doing, which are the comedies with some songs thrown in that make money, basically. And we're moving away, obviously, from the dramatic stuff. And it started with Blue Hawaii, and that was like a hugely successful uh, film. So United Artists gave Elvis a two-picture deal for Follow That Dream and Kid Galahad. And he was paid either 500000 or 600000 depending on the source, plus... 50% of all the profits from each film, which wow. is huge. It's a lot for a star. And especially because these movies were low production costs on the front end and pretty decently high returns for the time. How Wallace, who produced a lot of these movies for Elvis, uh, called him basically the only sure thing in show business. And it kind of makes sense because I was, I was looking through and I wanted to see, because, you know, the early 60s are kind of this point where you're transitioning from the old Hollywood system right with the the, like the four big studios and stuff like that and we're breaking they're breaking up a little bit and we're moving into new hollywood and if you look at statistics on the percentage of the u.s population that went to the movies on average like at least once a week 65 to 70 percent of people went to the movies once a week in 1930 what percentage of people do you think went to the movies once a week in 1960 uh i would say 30 or something while everything's going on it dipped below 20 so basically the movie industry is having a third of the people still go to these movies right and i think and besides part of it being the breakup of these big movie studios is also the biggest stars of the 40s and 50s where it kind of didn't really matter what the movie was but you know humphrey bogart and these really bankable faces that it was so much more vehicles for the actors than it was like about the movie itself right yeah and elvis kind of represents this last vestige of no matter what the movie is about elvis can sell it and they know it's going to make money and so i think that's part of the it wasn't just colonel parker you know putting pressure on him to make money because he is selfishly greedy it's also all these studios that are like hey you're the you're the last guaranteed real thing we have left in a time when the industry is changing rapidly Mm -hmm. and so that's also what i think is a huge uh huge force that pushes him into this kind of situation where he gets stuck doing this stuff you know, because it's less creative risk, but it's it's one of the only financially secure investments that a lot of a lot of these studios are making. And it makes sense why he transitioned to being in movies that were just him as a force drawing the audience vis-a-vis the songs as being central to everything that's happening in the movie and the most the biggest draw versus movies that are just movies for their own merit where he's an actor. So it that makes sense. They've now set it up so that it's more him as an entity outside the basic film industry it's almost like a new industry they can just feed on during production of this movie it apparently because they're you know filming in swampy old florida got to over 100 degrees every day one week and elvis had to change his shirt 22 times because he was was sweating so much i know also like Who's complaining about Elvis changing his shirt, though? Nobody. Kid Galahad, he's a boxer, right? So we're going to see a lot of shirtless Elvis coming up. Apparently, he was pretty nervous, though, about being shirtless because he's taking so many pills during this time that are also affecting his weight, and he was yeah. losing a lot of weight. So he was really – I do think you can kind of tell a little bit of a difference. He doesn't, he doesn't go fully shirtless, I don't think, in this movie. He does but a he few definitely, times. Oh, he does? Okay, but he definitely seems skinnier than he was in, like, 
flaming star or other stuff where he's got like you know a little more meat on those bones a little more cut yeah he doesn't have the muscle but he's actually gaining the gut a little bit in this movie so it'll be interesting to see him in the next one and as it happens on every movie that he works on he of course had a a bit of a fling with his co-stars surprise Uh, so one of them joanna moore who plays alicia the social worker she just has a really sad life story. She grew up in Parrot, Georgia. Uh, do, do you know how far away? Do you know what Parrot, Georgia is? Is it close to Parrot, where you grew up? Parrot, Georgia? Parrot, Georgia. Like, like the bird? Yeah. Never heard of it. Oh, okay. Well, middle of nowhere, Georgia. And she lost her family, though, her parents and a younger sister to a fatal car accident. So she was adopted by a wealthy family and then just met a producer for Universal at a cocktail party one time and just started acting. So she mm. spent her earlier years doing some tv guest spots and she's also actually in orson welles uh, touch of evil but she uh she and elvis he was kind of immediately intimidated by her reputation that she seemed to have for being a bit promiscuous along with uh having had two divorces already by age 23 well we we do know that elvis was pretty insecure about his sexual prowess so that would make sense yeah and again is kind of why he seemed to prefer younger more inexperienced girls for you know whatever reason Mm -hmm. and so this and she immediately once they started hooking up she started to proclaim her love for him and it kind of freaked him out uh so he then went on and ended up hanging out with Anne helm uh, holly the rest of the movie and they apparently were cool and she was 23 don't worry she wasn't super super young but after elvis dumped her when they returned to hollywood to finish shooting some interiors and other stuff she showed up at their house while he was asleep one night and she was slurring words and she was crying and she's trying to force her way in. And she was like, Elvis is going to be pregnant. I took a bunch of sleeping pills. I have to talk to him right now. And so he was asleep though inside and two of his, you know, his Memphis mafia guys took her to the UCLA emergency room and got her stomach pumped. So she was okay. And the, but the doctors were also like, yeah, we, there's, she's not pregnant. That's not true. Wow. And so they went back and they told Elvis what had happened the next morning. And he was like, okay, call and check on her and everything. And he said, I, I knew that girl had problems. That's why I stopped seeing her. Oof. And unfortunately, she soon, a couple of years after, then became completely deaf because she had a calcium deposit in her middle ear. Uh, so she was forced to only only understand what people were saying purely by reading lips. Whoa. And she was acting this entire time, which is pretty wild to that figure out how she actually- did that. That's really hardcore. And and then it starts to get sadder because she was, you know, getting regular work. But in 1970, she had to check into a state hospital for psych treatment uh, just because she had really bad drug and alcohol abuse. And it mm-hmm. helped her and her depression got worse and other stuff. And after she was released, she was arrested again for drunk driving um, after a fight with her husband, Ryan O'Neill, who was also an actor lost custody of her children oh, man. and then by the late 70s was completely financially supported by her daughter tatum who had end up becoming the youngest academy award winner in history at 10 years old wow because she was in uh peter bogdanovich's P- paper moon with her dad ryan o'neill who played her father in the movie so unfortunately though the rest of her life joanna was never able to kind of work through her drug and alcohol abuse five more duis and then passed away in 1997 from lung cancer but which is sad. I thought she was really, really good in this movie. And she definitely, like, her care, whatever you want to say about how her character is written and how weird her motivations are for trying to sleep with Elvis in this movie. She's, like, really good. She has really good comedic timing and was, you know, I thought a welcome presence, at least. Mm-hmm. But just really sad life story overall. Wow. I mean, there's been a few, like, 
actors who've been around Elvis that had not great things happen to them, right? Wasn't one of the actors from Love Me Tender died in a car accident, or was it Loving You? Uh, it was from Loving You, yeah. And then some other stuff that was actually cool, though, we got a lot of this from David in Tennessee, who we had emailed us before, so I just want to thank him again. He was He sent us some stuff about Tom Petty, because I didn't know, but Tom Petty was from Florida. He's from Gainesville. And his uncle actually worked on the set of Follow That Dream. So he got to drive over and meet him when meet Elvis when he was 10 years old. Oh, wow. And he said it was such like a life-changing experience that he went home and he traded his friend for all of the Elvis records that he owned. And that was the point where he's like, I'm going to make music. Whoa, that's wild. Tom Petty's last project, or the last thing he actually did before he died, was record audio interviews for The Searcher. So it's kind of like a cool bookend on his life that started with Elvis and ended talking about Elvis. That's rad. I had no idea. Can't you see I love you? Please don't break my heart in two. That's not hard to do because I don't have a wooden heart. And if you say goodbye, then I know that I would cry. Well, fascinating stuff. Uh, follow that dream. Not my favorite, but as always, it's it's enjoyable to watch another Elvis movie. They're all different. Mm-hmm. I definitely appreciate that. And even though Follow That Dream might have been a little disjointed, it still had a lot that I enjoyed. I don't want to downplay it to the point that I didn't like watching this movie. It just could have trimmed a little bit of the fat that's all i'm looking forward to kid galahad though Mm -hmm. because the boxing genre is a long-standing well-known genre but i actually haven't seen many boxing movies older boxing movies Mm. you know like rocky is 76 right and raging bull is 1980 i think Mm -hmm. and i mean on the waterfront marlon brando plays an ex-boxer but he doesn't box at all so i yeah i don't think i've ever actually seen a boxing movie older than Rocky. Also, Joan Blackman from Miley from Blue Hawaii will be back. Oh, yeah. Looking forward to seeing that. But, uh, yeah, shout out again to David for sending us that information about Tom Petty. We always appreciate anybody who wants to send us that kind of stuff. As much as Rob and I love listening to ourselves talk, clearly, having a larger conversation that we get to bring in the input that you guys give to more all-around informed discussions so if you have those thoughts anything you want to share with us anything you want to talk about email us at jailhousetalkpod at gmail.com or you can reach out to us on instagram at jailhousetalkpod like we said we'll be back next week with kid galahad for rob thomason i'm andrew shoemaker we'll see you guys soon (laughs) 